What's up, guys? Rachel Lindsay here, and I am teaming up with your favorite Ringer podcasters to deliver the Bravo drama and news that you've been craving on Morally Corrupt. It's the show about all things Bravo, from the housewives to summer house and everything in between. We'll be mentioning it all every week. Check it out on Spotify and TheRinger.com. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. We're not all professional athletes, but we all have health goals. That's why Anytime Fitness gives you access to personalized plans and support from a coach. Plus, you can track your training, nutrition, and recovery progress with the Anytime Fitness app, just like the pros. With 24-7 access to more than 5,000 gyms worldwide, get more from your gym membership. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, restrictions, all apply. See website for details. This episode is brought to you by Atlassian. Atlassian software like Jira, Confluence, and Trello help power global collaboration for all teams so they can accomplish everything that's impossible alone. Because individually, we're great, but together, we're so much better. Learn how to unleash the potential of your team at Atlassian.com, A-T-L-A-S-S-I-A-N.com, Atlassian. Tap the banner or visit this episode's page to learn more. Hey everybody, welcome back. It's Larry Wilmore and you are listening to Black on the Air. Thanks for uh, choosing this podcast. It's always fun to hang out with you guys, whether you're working out or you're driving somewhere, sitting around in your house, whatever it is. Choosing me to hang out with, shooting the shit, you know, that kind of thing. <laughs> it's a lot of fun. By the way, I really enjoy meeting you guys out in the world to the people that um, listen to the podcast and enjoy it and that type of thing. It really is a lot of fun to see uh, to see how much people really enjoy it. You know, podcasts are such an interesting animal. You know, it's a whole different showbiz thing. It, uh, it kind of has the intimacy that radio had in the early days with fireside chats, that kind of thing, when, um, you know, coming into people's homes and that kind of feel. Podcast is kind of cozy like that, right? Don't you feel kind of cozy right now? Yeah, it is. Let's get cozy. Um, so today I get to speak with Mr. James Burroughs, the famous uh, and quite accomplished director of television um, co-created Cheers, you know, he did Taxi, I mean, Frasier, Friends, Will and Grace, I mean, he has directed more episodes of quality television than probably any director in the history of television. Uh, it's crazy how much, not just TV, but great TV he's been um, responsible for. So, and I worked with him once, I got a chance to work with him, uh, almost 20 years ago, something like that. We did a pilot. It was a lot of fun. We talked a little bit about it. I spoke to him a couple of days ago. I hope you guys enjoy that. I'll bring, you know, I'm bringing some more kind of these type of talks, um, you know, uh, coming up in the pod because I really enjoy them. I feel like uh, I have a lot of people out there who are either in showbiz or they want to be in showbiz or they want to direct, they want to write, that kind of thing. And it's nice to hear from these kind of people, you know, people who, you know, have been at the top of their game doing it at the highest levels it's interesting to get their insight so i hope you guys enjoy these conversations as much as i do um in fact next week we'll be talking with david frankel 
uh, from the director of uh, Tuffle Wars Prada, two directors in a row. So we get a TV director this week, film director next week. And just to give you a little preview, David uh, directed the feature Jerry and Marge Go Large. And guess who's in it? Your boy, Larry. Yes, I'm in it. So that that's going to be next week. A lot of fun. Um, looking forward to that. Actually, we already spoke, so um, it was a great conversation. So much fun. He's so smart. He's so good. They're both so good, you guys. So many talented people out there. I'm very, very lucky, blessed, fortunate. Choose the adjective that works for you. <laughs> All of those things. Believe me, I know how fortunate I am to have worked with many of these people and hope to continue. By the way, why don't I give you an update on what's going on? Um, so I have a lot more. Here's the thing. I talk about this with David Franco, by the way. So um, let me announce that first. So I'm in this new movie that's coming out called Jerry and Marge Go Large. I know it's a crazy title. Uh, it'll be on the streaming platform Paramount Plus. Um, and I think, I believe it opens Friday, which is June 17th, maybe. I could be wrong on that date. But whatever the Friday is. Um, and I'm really excited about it, you guys. You know, for those of you friends of mine, you know, I occasionally act here and there, drop in and do things. A lot of people, you know, it's funny. Some people only know me from playing Mr. Brown on The Office. <laughs> it's hilarious. Like, like that's the only thing that I've done in their eyes. Oh, my God, it's Mr. Brown. Like, people still will come up to me excited about Mr. Brown. That was 18 years ago, I think, when I showed that. It was 17 years ago, Mr. Brown from The Office. Um but, you know, I've had smart, small parts in TV shows going back years, you know, in films and that kind of stuff. And it's been a part of my career. Um, I've kind of kept in a certain compartment because. Um, one of, well, let me put it like this. One of the reasons why I started writing and producing in television, I had been a stand up comic and I I realized that Hollywood just didn't get me. I was a little different than what they were casting for. And I was really inspired by what. You know, Robert Townsend was doing, Keenan Ivory Wayans, even Spike Lee. You know how black creators were just putting their own stuff on, creating their own spaces. And it's one of the reasons I started writing and producing was really out of practical reasons, really survival reasons. And But the more I started doing it, the more I actually enjoyed it and, you know, developed a skill set of my own. And I really do enjoy producing and directing probably more than performing at this point. You know, so it kind of, it kind of took over as the thing. But I still do like performing and I like acting and I like finding different ways for me to do it, you know. And sometimes I'll put it on the side for a while just because I'm so busy. But this is a little bit of an announcement. It's not really an announcement. It's a little bit of an announcement. It's more of a preview. More of a preview. I am going to be acting and performing more. I've decided it's something that I want to do. Um, I enjoy doing it. And for those of you who are fans of my performing, um, you're going to see my bully out in the world. So one of the things I'm doing is called Jerry March Gallard's the movie. It's based on the true story of the guy Jerry Selby and his wife Marge, who beat the lottery. This was in Michigan uh, back. I think it happened. The original thing happened like in 2003. It, it lasted for about nine years, something like that. Seven years. I don't know. But he didn't cheat it. He beat it. He figured it out by using math. Uh, it was a thing called the windfall lottery. And um, it was brilliant. I mean, he was like this math genius. He he was kind of retired. You know, he had worked in a cereal factory. 
And he was just bored. And he just looked at this thing and figured it out. And it ended up winning like about $27 million. But he didn't like keep it for himself. He got the whole town involved. Uh, had people buy in shares of a corporation he established and all this stuff. So everybody could profit. Isn't that awesome? It's great. So David Frankel's the director of the movie. And it's starring Brian Cranston and Annette Bening. And me. Um, I play his... <laughs> His accountant, his uh, CPA, CPA, whatever. Uh, and it was so much fun. We did it last August and we shot it in Atlanta, actually Atlanta for Michigan. And I just had a blast, you know, I mean, it was at the height of COVID and I just needed something just to make me feel better about the world and hanging out with these people for four weeks or whatever it was, was just, just a lot of fun. Rain Wilson is in it from the office. It was good to see Rain again. I had worked with him on the office course. Uh, and uh, Michael McKeon, I'm a big fan. Um, Anna Camp, um, of course, um, just everybody. It was just great. So I hope you guys enjoy. It's really funny. It really is. And it's not just funny. It's a really heartwarming movie. It's kind of Capra-esque in a contemporary sense, you know. And it's for the entire family, which is a nice thing to say. It's a movie for the entire family. So everybody can watch it. Um, and I really feel that we need these kind of feel-good movies these days to go along with all the other stuff that's going on. I mean, so much crap going on, right? I don't even want to talk about that stuff today. Um, so much crap going on. So it's nice to have these feel-good movies make us feel good, you know? So I'm in that. And Monday, which is July 13th, maybe, I'll be in The Tonight Show with Jimmy Fallon. Um... It's actually my first time on The Tonight Show, if you can believe that. Um, never been on, been on Colbert, been on Jimmy Kimmel. Never been on the actual Tonight Show. Wasn't on the one with Johnny Carson, Jay Leno, Conan. Now, finally, finally, I'm on The Tonight Show with Jimmy. And if you are listening to this before that, you know, DVR, record it. Have a look. We'll show a clip from the movie, and I'll have some fun. If you missed it after, I think you can catch those on Hulu or that type of thing or, or um, you know, YouTube or whatever. But the Tonight Show is coming Monday night to Wednesday. For any of, the, any of you at the Tribeca Film Festival, I will be there with the movie and we'll be doing a Q&A after the movie with um, some of the cast. And Brian Cranston, I believe, will be there. I think I have Benning's in the film right now. So, guys, if you're... If you're at Tribeca or you're in New York, or you want to hang out with the cast with us and talk about the movie and watch the movie, I trust me, you will enjoy this. You know I don't see you guys wrong. I know that I'm in it. I know that I'm prejudiced. Trust me, you'll have a good time. Coming out. Coming out to Tribeca uh, Wednesday and see it. And that's just a preview of some of the stuff that is happening in the Larry Wilmore world. Um, I'll share some more with you next week. Uh, you know, I'll give you an update every week. How about that? Let you know what's going on in both worlds. But uh, this is one of the funnest performing things actually doing the podcast. I really enjoy it a lot. So I will continue to do this. And like I said, I honestly, I really, I'm so uh, depressed by the stuff on the news today, these days. Um. It's so depressing. How do you guys do it? I mean, how do you even make it through a week with all this crap we have to see all the time? And, you know, to me, it feels like Groundhog Day. Nothing seems new. Like when I and they're all sad stories, like the whole gun thing. 
you know, a terrible story of the kids and the school and everything. And, you know, the, the guy who shot up the African-Americans in Buffalo and all these other places. People, I mean, when I see these stories, I feel really bad for the people and everything. But to me, it feels like Groundhog Day. It's, it's this horrible nightmare that we keep going through again and again and again with nothing ever really changing significantly about it. Um, and I'm sorry, Republicans, or people on the right, you motherfuckers are not being honest about this shit when it comes to guns. Guns don't kill people. People kill people. With guns, motherfucker! With assault rifles. That's how they're killing them. Jesus Christ. It is harder for an 18-year-old to rent a car than it is to buy a military-style assault rifle. That's fucking crazy. It's fucking crazy. I got no problems with the guns for self-defense, hunting, those types of things. I grew up in a culture where there were guns. Every every family I knew, there was a gun in the house. That's just because I'm older than you, mother, most of you motherfuckers. You know? That's just the way it was. Many people do. So they, there wasn't like any kind of you know bias necessarily against guns. You know, but nobody. I don't remember anybody owning like these military style style assault rifles. The first groups that I saw with those kind of guns were in the 80s when gangs like had Uzis and all these types of things and in the streets it was always criminals that had these types of weapons even if you look back in the you know guns have been a part of this culture for a long time even back in the 20s like Tommy guns and all that stuff it was Al Capone it was always gangsters but you're telling me an 18 year old a fucking fragile 18 year old should have an AR-15 in his hands at the minute he turns 18 that's fucking crazy you guys I mean, it's crazy. Um, so we'll see what's going to happen, but I don't hold out any hope. I feel like this scenario just keeps playing out. I get upset. I get angry. Then I just shut down. I can't even watch these stories. They're so fucking cold and awful. I mean, the fact that somebody could shoot up kids, man, that is some cold fucking horrible shit. That's some evil shit. That's not just sick. That's some evil shit. You can't... There's there's some evil forces uh, having you go into a classroom and shoot up children. That is some evil shit. I can't just put it in the sick category. That's terrible. Um, you know, whew. And just the way it was handled, all that, I can't even go to it. All of it makes me sick when I think of everything about, I'm thinking about the little kids in Texas. Everything makes me sick about that. It's just terrible. But they're all, it's all it's all Groundhog Day. Even this January 6th thing. I'm tired of seeing this shit, you guys. I'm tired of it. We keep seeing this thing over and over and over again. It's It really is like an episode of Columbo, the January 6th thing. Um, I mean, for those of you that remember Columbo, <laughs> familiar with it. In Columbo, we, at the beginning of each episode, we saw who committed the murder. We saw the murder. And Columbo came along, and the... The fun was seeing how Columbo would figure it out. That's what January 6th is. We saw who committed the crime in the beginning. The president of the motherfucking United States, Donald J. Donald Jackoff Trump. That's a horrible joke, sorry. We saw the criminal in the beginning. You know, there's no suspense in this. I don't even know why they're having these trials. I mean... Isn't the FBI already arresting people who were involved in this thing and sending them to jail? Unless you're going to be arresting Donald Trump, I really don't get it. 
What? Why are we doing this? We already know what happened. We know the stupid, horrible motherfucker that did this. We know it's Trump. To me, the only purpose to have these hearings, the only purpose is to get Trump arrested. If he's not going to be arrested, you are wasting my time. You're wasting my time. I, I believe that the regular channels of law enforcement, the FBI, whoever, can look at these things. They don't need to be, it doesn't even need to be in front of me and go arrest the people involved. Whoever, whoever broke the law in accordance with this, go arrest them. They did something wrong. Go arrest them. I'm happy with that. I don't need to be updated on that every second. Honestly, I don't. But if you are going to arrest Donald Trump, please, yes, televise that. That is riveting television now. Go to his house, bring him out in cuffs, and take him to jail. I would love that. But if that's not what this is leading to, you are wasting my time. We've seen this already. We already we saw it in real time. We know how horrible it is. We get it. Stop telling us this all the time. We're tired of it. Unless you're going to arrest that motherfucker. That's what I'm saying. Don't do it unless he's, unless he's the object of it. And when I say don't do it, I don't need to see it. Do it, do it behind closed doors. You don't have to televise this shit. Unless we get the money shot, you guys. And the money shot is putting cuffs on Donald Trump. That is the money shot. That's my little TV advice for these hearings. Um, okay. This thing is making me, just giving me pains all over my body. Um, that's all I got, you guys. Uh, anyhow, a, a much more pleasant conversation with uh, TV legend Jimmy Burrows coming right up. This episode is brought to you by Hotels.com. I was traveling internationally last year. I was in Mallorca. I didn't know the island well. I said, let me head to the north, head towards the water. Let me go on Hotels.com and see what they have available. Something preferably on the beach, maybe even a gym. Not only did I get those things, there was a kid's session with exercise, gymnastics in the water, pony rides, a train. It had everything, and I didn't even want any of those things. But at least I knew they were there just in case I changed my mind. And now finding the perfect hotel has never been easier thanks to the Hotels.com app. Whether you're looking for a family-friendly, right, all-inclusive, or a relaxing spa weekend, you can find exactly what you need and compare hotel prices, ratings, and amenities side-by-side. Side. So start planning your next getaway and find your perfect somewhere in the Hotels.com app. Today's show is another one of those special shows, you guys, because I get to hang out as I was very lucky to hang out with this gentleman a few years ago for a couple of weeks. It's one of the best couple of weeks of my professional life. So much fun. And we'll talk about that a little later. But the reason why is because his, by the way, he has a book out called Directed by James Bros. Five Decades of Stories from the Legendary Director of Taxi Cheers, Frasier Friends, Will and Grace, and more. And it's the more that we're going to talk about with him today. He's the legendary Jimmy Burroughs. Welcome to Black on the Air. Jimmy, it's so great to see you. Oh, Larry, it's so great. It's been so long. Uh, I know. And, uh, I mean, rarely do we get the chance to hang out and be a fly on the wall, you know, to somebody like you, let alone work with somebody like you. But now, this book, and I'm about halfway through, I just got it, um, just opened it uh, last night. It's so good. It's Thank so you. much fun to read. 
it uh it feels like we're we're in a conversation with you about uh these things which is it's so fantastic uh, what what was your what why did you want to do this right now was it something you've been thinking about for a while did you just want to get it all out now or did somebody ask you to do it how did that come about uh, somebody told me to do it, my wife. Yeah, <laughs> that's always a good reason to do things, by the way. <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's a honeydew is what it is, actually. It's a good honeydew. Yeah, I know. I've been I've had these stories in my brain for years. Yeah. I tell them to people. I I don't remember who I tell them to and everything like that. And she finally said, you keep telling the same ones to me. Yeah, that's great. So let's put it in a book and then. So I um, called, uh, you know, uh, I, I my, my agency has a literary agent, mm-hmm. although I didn't know agents could read, really. <laughs> <laughs> now, now, are you I'm still? Sorry. Yeah, okay. Now, now, let's be, because I know you're with Bob Broder for a very long time. He's, but he's not, no, Bob now is running Chuck Laurie's company. So. Yeah, Bob is one of the nicest agents ever. Oh, my ever. God. He's just, you know, legendary. Yes. Yes. We refer to him as Broder. That's yes, a, Mr. Broder. Yes. So uh, they hooked me up with a writer named Eddie Friedfeld, mm-hmm. and I told him stories for about a year. Wow. And he compiled a book and uh, he talked to a lot of people. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it came out and we worked on it and f- refined it and, mm-hmm. you know, took took all the drama out of it and just left the comedy. <laughs> the drama. <laughs> but I'm amazed that like, I'm always amazed at people's recall for things, too. Were you surprised at how many things you remember, especially from those formative years, you know, when you're, you know, a young kid to, you know, your early years starting out? Were you amazed at some of your recall for some of that? Yes and no, because people, you know, when I first came out here 40 years ago, or it's almost 50, people people would, you know, ask me about my dad because yeah. my dad was still alive and. Uh, I would tell stories about him. So they were, you know, they've always been fresh in my mind. And uh, so, uh, again, telling stories over 40 years, they get a little boring. So I decided to to expose them to people who who don't get to spend time with me, who, you know, uh, check out of what it was growing up like in New York City as a kid of a famous father. Yeah. Your dad, of course, the famous eight boroughs, the brilliant writer and you know, theater, uh, director, joke writer. I mean, he did so many things, you know, in that heyday of that time of radio and TV and theater, you know, what, I mean, I love hearing the stories of what it was like being a kid. And what's nice about your book is they're generous stories. There there isn't, there's this horrible conflict between father and son or whatever. (laughs) I mean, the affection you have for your dad and everything and the respect is really great. Talk about that time a little bit growing up. Were you aware? Like, how, I've always wanted to, how much aware are you of your dad's fame? Like, when did you first kind of become aware that that was a thing? Because he's just a dad to you, right? Right. Uh, uh, my parents were divorced and uh, we lived with my mom about five blocks away from my dad in New York City. So I would see my dad on the weekends and we'd have dinner with him once once a week in uh, and during the week. My mm-hmm. sister and I. And, you know, he was when we saw my dad, it was, you know, it was dinner or we could go to a show or, yeah. you know, he was a Disneyland dad. Right. Of. Exactly. Very typical in in divorces of that type yeah. of thing where the dad takes on that role at the, you know, the mom's not that happy about that role. No. She gets to be the, the bad guy most of the time. Yeah. But they 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 were they were OK with one another. And uh, uh, he would trundle my sister and I off to rehearsals occasionally. And mm-hmm. we would. 
you know, sit in a theater for whatever, how long our attention span could tolerate it, not know what's going on, but watching mm-hmm. him up on stage, you know, talking to people and stuff like that. So I have, you know, I have those me- memories and I, I have memories of, he had friends that were uh, extraordinary. I realize now how extraordinary they were, but but, yeah. uh, but uh, when I was young, you know, he had always had a New Year's Eve party with wow. uh, Capote was there and Conrad Green was there and John. I I sat with John Steinbeck once, wow. you know, and, and Julie Stein and all the Broadway people, and uh, I was just a, a kid on New Year's Eve. I would pass out, um, you know lays and those things that make noise <laughs> and the things you blow and right that would be it you know uh woody allen's movie uh midnight in paris i think it's called where he kind of uh, romanticizes that time in the 20s where you could hang out with these artists and everything you know right <laughs> in paris i feel like your childhood had that feel to it you know where these famous people people are playing the piano groucho marx is singing i mean is it it, does it was it as fun as the way that you make it sound? It was. It mm-hmm. it was. And my father had a great sense of humor mm-hmm. and told great stories and played the piano by ear. He couldn't read music. And you know, I talk about some of the songs. He he got famous for writing type songs, he called them. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm in love with the girl with the three blue eyes. What makes her different? Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know how are you going to keep them down in the farm after they've seen the farm <laughs> now where where did those songs exist were they popular songs or were they songs in shows like where were they no they were songs he would play at parties oh i see that's okay. how he in california in the late 30s and early 40s before he was established he would they would invite him to parties you know yeah. Groucho and danny Kay had him at a party and robert benchley and and he would sit and play these type songs. You know, I know I'm going to see you in my dreams tonight, and that's why I'm staying awake. Right. <laughs> <laughs> now, Groucho was a big fan of those type of songs. He sang, remember the one-man show that he did? I think he did it in Broadway or something. He sang like a lot of those types of songs. It, right. It must have been the right. same type of thing, you know. Yeah, I met Groucho once. It was thrilling. Yeah. How old were you? uh about 35 oh so it was it wasn't when you were like oh no it was out it was in california my dad came to visit me and we went to dinner at chasen's i got to meet groucho which was amazing was he still witty by that at that time and everything or was he He just kind of grouchy witty and mean yeah (laughs) i heard that groucho was mean oh my god there we were sitting at the we were walking out and uh he saw my dad and he and he beckoned us over and we sat down at his table mm-hmm. in Chasen's and um, Adolf Zucker. Now, I don't know if you know, Adolf Zucker ran Paramount. Yeah, Paramount. And pictures. he was like in his 90s. He he had retired and he was, he kind of shuffled along and he was leaving the restaurant and Groucho. And Groucho sees him walking out and he goes, Adolf, hasta mañana, hasta mañana. <laughs> Backing him over to the table, you know, it was right. so cruel because Adolf couldn't hear or understand. Uh, oh my God! I think Groucho resonated with so many generations because he just—he was the first comedian. He and W.C. Fields—they just didn't care. No, they, they didn't just care. Did not care. They had no filter, none whatsoever. They—they they did not care at all. Yeah. What was the biggest? let's say a uh, showbiz lesson that you think you gleaned from your, from watching your dad in those days, was it how to make things funny? Was it? Well, you, if you don't know how to make things funny, you can't be in 
You you gotta, you have that gene. You, I've seen you put it when it gets stale, you put it in the refrigerator. That's right. Leave it there for two or three days and you put it back in and it, it works. It works even better. Yeah, you, you know? guess put some spices on it. Some fun I know. spices on it. Make it funny. But uh, you, so you, uh, the sense of humor he gave to me genetically, mm-hmm. or I'm sure my mom uh, had uh, contributed to that, contributed to that a bit. But the thing my father taught me, well, he taught me a lot of things when I didn't know I was learning. Okay. So, but the other thing he taught me was kindness. Oh, that's great. When Abe directed... I worked for him as a stage manager, which on Broadway is the guy who calls the cues for the shows and makes sure, sure the actors are there on time and everything like that. Arguably the most important person. In yeah, when the theater. show is up and running. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. So I would be there on rehearsals with him and I watched how he dealt with how he dealt with actors. Mm-hmm. It was unbelievably kind and incredibly manipulative. Interesting. Now, when you say manipulative, he was kind to a purpose yes he was kind my father was kind but right he was he was when i say manipulative he was nice and mm-hmm. sweet and he would say to the actor what do you think and the actor mm-hmm. would say i think this or that and abe would say okay let's try it that way and he would eventually go back to the way he wanted it to yeah but at least the actor felt included yeah. And therefore, part of the production, and it's not only the director and the writer's show, it's the actor's show. So yeah. that's that's what he taught me, and that's how I've operated all these years. It's amazing how kindness is a rare commodity a lot in showbiz, and it amazes me that things ever get done sometimes. Uh, <laughs> you know, I mean, I'm sure you've seen a lot of uh, crazy things. Oh, my God. What were some of the craziest things you th- you saw before you were, like, doing what you're doing? You know, like, in those days where it's like, I don't even know if I want to stay in this business. <laughs> you know, I had some travesties when I was directing regional theater that, yeah, you know, you know, I because you, you put a star into a, a production that was already you know, like a a script that had run on Broadway and you were doing comedies and sometimes Mm -hmm. the star didn't fit, you know, but you had to bend and flex the star to fit into the role. So it was, it was, it was crazy. Once I got to do, starting to do sitcom, you know, I've had work with crazy people. I was let go of a show because I didn't shoot a, shoot a up of a capon chicken on a table. That's crazy. Yeah. The guy, you know, the guy who fired me thought that was important. So when did you know that, I mean, it must have been tough for you to have a dad who's so successful in showbiz. When you're at that certain age or in college, you figure, I don't know what I want to do. I mean, you talk about not knowing what you wanted to do. Did you know you wanted to be in showbiz, but you weren't quite sure where you fit? Was that some of those early years kind of going through your mind, just trying to figure out what your place was? I don't think I ever wanted to be in show business. I Interesting. Really? He was, my father was a legend. And there mm-hmm. was no way that I thought I could be in the same business as him. And mm-hmm. I, I had never d- any desire to do it. And then mm-hmm. uh, when I went to Overland College as a government major, my dissertation was on gerrymandering, which, you know, I mean, Man. how many times have you used that joke? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, my gerrymandering. Uh, oh, your routine. Oh. Let me tell you, my, my file cabinet of gerrymandering <laughs> jokes is huge. Well, I used to give them to other comedians. Oh, yeah, you had to. You know, oh, you, had, you had so many of them. 
the stuff I gave to ventriloquists that had to do with gerrymandering is <laughs> some of my best work. Let me tell you, Judy. <laughs> and and so I, it was the time of the Vietnam War, and I didn't want to be in that. Yeah. So we, I went to the Yale School of Drama, and mm-hmm. there I, you know, I learned all trades of the theater, and I learned mm-hmm. directing, and uh, that seemed pretty interesting to me. Mm-hmm. But uh, you know, then I got out of Yale. I had to. I had a college deferment, but I had to take a physical and I failed because I was too funny. <laughs> That's a great way to fail. Isn't that unbelievable? People don't know. What that a compliment. That, I had no idea. Yeah, that works. That works. I made the guy laugh so hard. Do you remember what some of your jokes were? Like, what were no, you doing? I'm kidding. I didn't do it. Oh, okay. <laughs> I was going to say, <laughs> I bought that. I'm like, That's fantastic. <laughs> most of my friends got, you know, most of my friends didn't sleep for four or five days. Let yeah. their beard grow shag. They did, you know, nobody wanted to go there. And yeah. uh, so I I got a job driving a truck mm-hmm. or um, a summer circuit, uh, musical tents. And I started to watch rehearsals. I was in charge of uh, the scenery. From, when I moved from one tent to the next, I would load it on a truck, take it to the next tent and hire people at that apprentices at that tent to run them down the aisle during the show. So mm-hmm. that's how I started. And then I have, and then I stage managed assistant stage managed for my dad on a show called breakfast at Tiffany's, mm. which was a musical that he wrote starred Mary Tyler Moore and Richard Chamberlain. Yeah. And I was in charge of them because they were from Hollywood and they didn't know about the stage. And so I was in charge mm-hmm. of them. And so that's how my career started because my, it was not my father's best work. He was replaced by a man with many musical comedy awards, Edward Albert. Yeah, yes, yes. Uh, somehow Zoo Story. And, oh, uh, my God. <laughs> and Breakfast at Tiffany's, it seems like a perfect fit. Yeah. So it was when Edward took over, it became a disaster. We played four previews in New York. Mary would come off after every scene and she'd be weeping because the audience wow. was screaming at her. Mm-hmm. And saying, why don't you write a better show? Wow, this really? Is, yeah, oh. Wow. Because, uh, you know, Edward created, he used the character of Dick Chamberlain, which was George Papard in the movie. He yeah. created the character of Holly, and he could crush her like a piece of paper and throw her away and create a new character. And he would say to, to Mary on stage, I'll, I'll write you, I'll, I'll write a new character. And the audience would say, why don't you write a better show? So it was, oh, it was a disaster. And so I stayed with her Wednesday night. The show closed Wednesday. I stayed with her Wednesday night till Grant Tinker, her husband, came. And so that was my bond with Mary. Mm-hmm. But then I went on to more stage managing and more dinner theater and summer stock and regional theater. And in 1974, I was, I was directing Joan Fontaine in 40 Carats. Wow. And I turned on Saturday night. I saw that there was a Mary Tyler Moore show. So I watched it. I had never seen it before. Mm-hmm. And I noticed they were doing a 25 minute play in front of a live audience in a week. And I was doing a two hour play in a week. Mm-hmm. And I wrote her a letter and the letters in the book. And yeah, it's an amazing letter. I got a call from Grant Tinker about two weeks later saying MTM has four multi-camera situation comedies we were interested in theatrical directors would you come out and do one and that was the beginning do you think this was the first time where you felt like you bet on yourself you know you said okay 
I'm going to bet on myself here because that's a big leap of faith. I mean, you're putting yourself out there to marry Tyler Moore, you know, <laughs> wanting to do this thing. What if you let her down? You know, what if you embarrass her? You know what I mean? What if this isn't the right move? You didn't even know you wanted to be in showbiz. No, but as I as I was directing before this letter, you know, I found that in these old tried and true comedies, I was directing with these kind of television stars, you know, and dinner theaters. I, I put in an occasional joke and I would create business. So I had a sense that, you know, this might be where I should be. So, yeah, that's mm. my one big leap of faith. Yeah. In my career. And how much do you think theater really, really helped you in those early days? You know, all that experience in theater, as opposed to someone who just may have come up on television was just a student of that. Yeah, it's. To do multi-camera sitcoms, you have to know theater. Yeah. You can always learn the technical. You can always learn how to move the cameras and how to capture the, the show. But you can't learn how to talk to actors. You can't learn what's funny. You have to be able to have a theatrical knowledge because it is, uh, I'm filming a play. It's a play. And uh, so you have to tell the story and the cameras are secondary. Yeah, one of the striking things about that period in television, too, is... You know, it went through a transition. Shows were more realistic. They were more about things. I feel like you came up in the theater at the right time when even theater was changing during that time, right? It was more daring things were being put on Broadway during that time. You know, theater is usually ahead of other forms in doing that in most cases, too. Which is right, interesting. right. I, I, I came out in probably the golden age of television. Yeah. And a great age of theater, too. Yeah, it was a remarkable time. What was great is because, and you, what I really like about here is where you talk about character. And when I talk to writers sometimes, it's amazing how people don't talk about character that much. They'll talk about situations first or maybe the cinematic aspect of it. And I love that you talk about how important that is uh, in sitcom work, especially, f I mean, certainly from a writer's point of view. And this is what I'm when I say I'm shocked that writers don't talk about it that much, but even as a director, why tell us why character is the beginning and end of all good comedy? Because you have to have the, the audience identify with these people. Mm -hmm. They have to, there has to be something in them that uh, a vulnerability in them and redeeming quality in them so that they can go to uh, the edge and the redeeming quality pulls them back. So that's so important. And especially in a television show, because you can't have the Maypole episode in the first year. You got to do episodes about character, character episodes. You don't want to have stunts early on, because if you have one stunt, it's going to lead to more stunts. You have to outdo yourself. So it's all based on character. And, you, mm -hmm. you know, my shows are that way. Uh, yeah. Taxi and especially Cheers, where I brought them in, and I sat them down and they talked mm -hmm. and they talked literate and they talked funny and uh, people uh, loved Diane Chambers and uh, half the men wanted to go to bed with her and the other half wanted to kill her. So, <laughs> but they were invested in yeah, that. Yeah, but they were invested in that. She was amazing. Yeah. Without Shelley Long, Cheers doesn't get to year two. Yeah, I want to come back to Cheers in a second. But, but speaking of Mary Tyler Moore, that show, did you learn your all the the biggest things you needed to learn on that show? And like, how brilliant was Jim Brooks to 
just to put that thing on the air too at the time when I think about the times. First of all, it's a woman who's single, you know, and she's presented in this different way than we haven't really seen women during that time, you know. What did it feel like of being on that show? Did it feel like you were breaking barriers at that time? No, I felt totally intimidated. Uh, the first show I did on uh, the Mary Tyler Moore was called uh, Neighbors. It, we read it around the table. It was Lou moves into Rhoda's apartment. So the thrust is Lou and Mary work in the office together and now they're living together. Right. So uh, we read it around the table. It was a C minus, maybe. And I said to Grant Tinker, in a sea of Danish, I get a bagel. <laughs> I literally said that. And so I went down on stage. And in those days, we didn't break after a reading because this was mm -hmm. going to be a big rewrite. So I went down and started rehearsing stuff I knew would be rewritten. And, you know, Mary was Utsi. She wasn't happy. And Ed wasn't happy. And I was dealing with these six high quality famous mm. actors. And I was a little pitcher from New York that was brought in. And so I, I, did the best I could. I uh, The last scene I invoked uh, Chekhov because it's Lou and Mary, him saying goodbye to the apartment. And I had him sit on suitcases and say, this is like the cherry orchard. You're saying goodbye. I was going to say, yeah. You mm -hmm. know, I was doing anything. <laughs> I was creating bits of business. I wasn't telling them what to do. Right. I was saying I was trying to inspire them with ideas that make channel ideas for them. And as I was walking towards the stage to shoot the show on Friday night, Mary came out of her trailer and she stopped me and said, we feel our investment in you has worked out. Wow. So I, I went out and cried for a half hour. I was just, wow. I was stunned. I was stunned and I hadn't even shot the show. Uh -huh. So that was it. That was the beginning. And then I got, you know, all those other shows on the MTM lot, you know, New Hearts yeah. and Paul Sands and Bob Cranes and Rhoda's and Phyllis's and that. And uh, one of the aspects of the Mary Tyler Moore show that kind of runs through a lot of your work is doing an ensemble show, you know. And of course, Mary has a lead, but it really is an ensemble show. You know, we were able to invest in all of the characters, you know, in a, what seems like a satisfying way. What, what do you think is the is the secret to doing those types of shows because you've done them so well over and over again. And I know for a fact, they are not easy. First of all, you have to have the chemistry. You have to be lucky enough to catch yeah. people who are going to have the chemistry. And I, I didn't do it on the Mary show. Uh, mm -hmm. I, 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 that was already my mentor, Jay Sandridge, the late Jay Sandridge was Great the guy character. who put that show together. So, so important in my life. So I, I watched him uh, on that show before I, I got my gig. So I had some idea of how he worked. I couldn't be as uh, vocal as Jay was and at, the, at mm -hmm. this point. It took, it took me a while to do that, especially being surrounded by Jim and Alan and Ed Weinberger and Stan Daniels. So, yeah. but the, the key is you got to make those people in your cast like one another mm -hmm. in the cast. Now, what do you mean by that? I mean, they got to get on with one another. You can't have one mm -hmm. person... You can't have a star who's uh, I'm the star. You can't do that. Mm -hmm. You have mm -hmm. to have people who are willing to, you know, to be in a lifeboat together to all row together. Mm -hmm. You know, you don't want the cast rowing to pull the star on a surfboard. You want to mm -hmm. be able to have everybody a part of it. And, and the ensuing shows that I did, starting with Taxi, 
that's what I that's what I tried to work for. I tried to work mm -hmm. for that harmony because if they like or dare I say love one another, that's going to come across the screen to the mm -hmm. to, to the viewer at home. So mm -hmm. uh, on that on the Mary show, I just I just tried to stay afloat. I I was you know I was not in that lifeboat with them. I was just you know trying to contribute in any way I could. This episode is brought to you by Jiffy Lube. Cars can be a big investment, so it's important to take care of them. I once got a car that I started out with 25,000 miles on. I got it to over 200,000 miles because I took care of it. You know how you take care of a car? You take care of the maintenance, the oil, the brakes, all that stuff. And if you don't, you can have a car just completely fall apart. When your car needs maintenance, head to Jiffy Lube. They provide automotive excellence at speed. Get your oil changed, brakes checked, tons of other multi-care services. It's all done by expertly trained technicians who actually care about taking care of you and your car. Jiffy Lube, car more. To find coupons and start an instant online estimate, visit JiffyLube.com. This episode is brought to you by Hotels.com. I was traveling internationally last year. I was in Mallorca. I didn't know the island well. I said, let me head to the north, head towards the water. Let me go on Hotels.com and see what they have available. Something preferably on the beach, maybe even a gym. Not only did I get those things, there was a kid's session with exercise, gymnastics in the water, pony rides, a train. It had everything, and I didn't even want any of those things. But at least I knew they were there just in case I changed my mind. And now finding the perfect hotel has never been easier thanks to the Hotels.com app. Whether you're looking for a family-friendly, right, all-inclusive or a relaxing spa weekend, you can find exactly what you need and compare hotel prices, ratings, and amenities side by side. So start planning your next getaway and find your perfect somewhere in the Hotels.com app. How did a taxi come about? Uh, I was doing, uh, I, believe it or not, I, 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 I did 10 Laverne and Shirley's. I know, it sounds so interesting. I know, yeah. so <laughs> I know. I was there when the shit hit the fan. Oh, man. And, yeah. Uh, then Jim Brooks uh, and Ed called me and said, would you consider doing this show? And again, I was flabbergasted. Mm -hmm. I'm sure Jay turned it down. And Paul Bogart was a really big director then. He wow. probably turned it down and they and they came to me. And this was for the pilot. They were the asking pilot. for the pilot. Right? And the series. Because wow. they had 13 on the air. Yeah. And Taxi is so indelible in so many ways, but it's not an easy show to do. You know, people have tried to replicate Taxi so many years. People go, it's like Taxi, you know, when people are doing sick <laughs> and stuff. But Taxi's not easy. You know, there's, there's a magic about it, first of all, with that cast, right? Yeah. Uh, it was, you know, I call it my interplanetary cast. Yes, but that cast, I believe there were a lot of complications with oh. that cast because there's, you know, egos, you know, there's no clear lead, even though, yeah, Judd Hirsch is the lead, but who's really getting the laughs here? What is this show about? I mean, there's so many issues on a show like that where egos could get out of control, it seems like. It was, it was my first big endeavor. Yeah. And, uh, you know, the uh, Jim wrote it and uh, Ed Weinberg and Stan Daniels, and Dave Davis, they were the writers and intimidating. Yeah. You know, they were they were the best of the best. They were the best. They were the top of the world. 
Yeah. And uh, the Charles brothers were on it. They were the producers. Yeah. So I had th- that incredible um, guru like existence wow. of me. And uh, 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 Jim was doing a movie the first year. Uh, so he would come in on certain days and ask for rewrites. And then Ed would come in the next day and ask for different rewrites. Oh. So it was. So you had that. Then you had a cast that was some theater trained. Mm-hmm. Tony was a boxer. <laughs> he was. He was a boxer. He had done one movie of the week. And yeah. then uh, Andy was a comedian. Yeah. And, and an they, alternative comedian at that. Not yeah, even oh, like my a, God. The bravest yeah. comedian I've ever seen. Yeah. I mean, you know, crazy. I mean, almost you talked about Fields and, and Groucho. Andy did stuff. Yeah, he didn't. He did stuff till you laughed. I don't know yeah. a comic now that does that. If he gets on yeah. a on a bender, a comic, and goes with a routine that's not working, he's going to switch the routine. Andy never did that. No one has ever replicated Andy Kaufman. He once read The Great Gatsby on stage at the comedy store and just he would continue to read it and the audience would be booing and he just read or read. And he said, Look, do you want me to keep reading this or do you want me to play with this record player play the record player record player. He said, no i'm gonna keep reading and we keep reading and he did this a couple of times when we do this or do this you know play the record player no i'm gonna keep reading and he's reading the great gatsby right people are just like screaming at him and he says okay fine fine you know i'll play the record you know <laughs> and he puts on the record and it takes off exactly where he left off in the book of him <laughs> reading the great gatsby <laughs> I mean, that's the kind of just he and he took that long, that long to get one big laugh. Right. He was amazing. He was amazing. You know, I spent a lot of time with him. Uh, uh, He was he's quiet and meek in person. Mm. He's from Great Neck, Long Island, you know, the hotbed Mm. of comics. (laughs) Yes. Yes. As we know. Yes. Yes, uh, You know, and uh, he was he had he had day night reversal. He would stay up till four or five in the morning. And so he would come oh, in at one o'clock. Mm. And then, you know, so that was my cast. And that's why. And the set was so huge. Yeah. Had four cameras. It was just this, this crazy, crazy circus that I had. I had no whip as the ringmaster. Mm-hmm. I just had all, all I could do to keep everybody in line. And that's so it was the most difficult show for me. What is the thing that you probably learned the most out of doing an impossible show like that that has stayed with you? Because there had to have been something. Uh, by the way, I love how you talk about just the set itself in the book and how important it is to have different levels. Yeah. You know, and that sort of thing is a very interesting thing because, you know, sometimes the technical thing can take care of other things because you're paying attention to something else. Right? <laughs> what taxi taught me was that I, I, I knew what I was doing. Oh, that's great. You know, I just, yeah. you know, the fact that that's I great. could get that show up and running yeah. on a Friday night with every, with all the chaos going. Right. And laugh my ass off. Yeah. You know, there is seminal, seminal moments in, in that show. Uh, uh, what does yellow light mean is maybe one of the funniest moments in the history of television. <laughs> I mean, the Charles brothers wrote that script. I, I'll never forget. I, I went to New York and I took three or four scripts with me and I read the, uh, the what does the yellow mean, that script uh, on the plane. And I was laughing so hard. The stewardess came over and asked me if I was okay, because it was so good, but well, that's what 
you know, taxi taught me. I, I, I did difficult things, including dealing with Tony Clifton, Andy's, Andy's alter ego. Okay, a lot of people don't know who Tony Clifton is. What a, another one of the most amazing type of things Andy Kaufman did. Please introduce Tony Clifton to this young audience that may not know who, <laughs> who, what you're talking about. Okay, so Andy Kaufman had a uh, another persona. And it was an, uh, a bad lounge singer from Vegas named Tony Clifton. Mm-hmm. And it was Andy. Andy would dress up with um, prosthetics on his face, a big belly. He would wear a fluffy shirt right. with, uh, with diamonds in it and a brocade tuxedo. Mm-hmm. And he would come out on an Andy Kaufman concert and open and start singing. And the audience would go like, like with the great Gatsby, boo, get off, get off the stage. You're crazy. Bring on Andy. He would, he would go for five, six, seven minutes. Then he'd go off and there'd be a slight pause and he'd come back on as Andy or foreign man and do the mighty mouse routine. And then, which people wanted to see. Yeah. And then strip off the coveralls and do the best Elvis impersonation you've ever seen. So right. the man was crazy, you know, he was unbelievable. So in order to get in order to get Andy Kaufman to be in taxi, we had to agree that Tony Clifton could be in one show. Wow. Wow. Wait, so <laughs> how does a negotiation like this happen? Like, I mean, this sounds crazy to me. It is crazy, but it was it was gen- it was genius. It was a moment uh-huh. I'll never forget. So we, the, the boys wanted Andy so much, Jim and Ed wanted Andy so much, they agreed to it. So episode seven wow. comes around and Tony Clifton is going to play Louis De Palma's brother. Mm-hmm. So it's the day that Bucky Dent hit the home run for the New York Yankees against the Boston Red Sox. Against the Red Sox. To the, to the, to the series. Right. And Tony and Tony Dancer and I are watching TV and it's like nine, 10 in the morning. And Andy never came in till one. So at nine, the door of the prop room flies open where we're watching and says, let's get to work. And it's Andy dressed as Tony Clifton. Right. Totally different clock than Andy Kaufman. Oh, totally different. Right. Totally different. And we say, oh, we're watching again. Come on, let's go. So we, we, we rehearse. We start rehearsing. And I realize early on, this is not going to work. Because you have Andy Kaufman playing Tony Clifton playing Louis De Palma's brother. This is not going to work. Oh, my God. Just the layers. So I call Ed down. Ed looks at a scene. He says, "We know. I know what we have to do. We go up. We call the late George Shapiro. Ed calls George Shapiro. Great man. Great man. George just passed away. I know. God, he was so such sad. a great guy. Yeah. And we have to fire Tony. And uh, George says, Andy's not going to be happy. <laughs> yes yes so george calls us back he says i spoke to tony tony wants to be fired on stage with a prostitute on each knee okay okay this is why this moment is great so it's all in the man in the moon if you see the jim carrey film that milo's right 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 Yeah, yeah so we come in the next day at 10, 10 30, you know, Tony's there. Going like this. And there are a couple of prostitutes there. Oh and uh, Ed comes down, says, 
you know, and, and Tony goes and sits on stage with a prostitute on each knee. And Ed comes down and says, you're fired. And uh, uh, Tony says, I'm not leaving. Mm. Ed says, you're fired. Tony says, I'm not leaving. You're fired. I'm not leaving. So I'm watching with Judd and Tony and Conaway, Jeff Conaway. Wow. And wow. this is the greatest thing you've ever seen in your life. Oh my this is God. the greatest Just thing. The theater. And it is. And mm. so Conaway is getting so angry <laughs> that he starts to charge. He wants to kill it. He wants to kill Tony. So Tony and I both grab him and slam him up against the wall and say, listen, you dumb MF, enjoy this guerrilla theater. You're never going to have a moment like this again. Never. So he calmed down and Ed is still going, you're fired. I'm not leaving. Judd says, okay, I guess I have to play. So Judd walks there, picks him up, starts carrying him out. Andy's screaming. The girls are screaming. Throws him outside the stage. Andy, scre uh, Tony's screaming all the way out the lot. He leaves. We hire another actor to play uh, Danny's brother. The show is fine. Next week, Andy comes in as if nothing happened. Wow. And it's amazing that Andy's nowhere to be found during that week. Also, it's just Tony Clifton. Right? It's Tony Clifton. I don't know if I put this in the book, but it just triggered my memory. Danny DeVito was one of the producers of The Man in the Moon. So you thought Tony Clifton was great. <laughs> and he invited me down to the uh, Warner's lot, I think, uh, when they were shooting the taxi stuff. Mm -hmm. And, you know, they had the setup, So it made me nostalgic and everything like that. Yeah. And Andy walked, I mean, Danny walked me around and said, okay, you know, Jim Carrey starring in this. And when he's Andy, you have to call him Andy. And when he's, Tony, you have to call him Tony. So they were shooting the scene that Milos was shooting the scene where he gets thrown off the stage. But I was wandering around before the shoot. I'm wandering around and all of a sudden I hear, hey, hey, you. And I turn around and here comes Jim Carrey dressed as Tony Clifton wow. coming up to me. He said, I say, well, hello, Mr. Clifton. And he says, yeah, hi, hi. Uh, you remember me? I said, yeah, yeah. We, we worked together. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was a great experience. By the way, a friend of mine is a big fan of yours. I said, really, who? He said, Jim Carrey. Mm, mm, mm. Mm, mm, mm. Yeah, I don't know what <laughs> happened to Jim during the shooting of that. That was bizarre. Oh, my God. That whole experience. He channeled Andy in a way that I'm not sure if it was very healthy. <laughs> I don't think he's been the same since that movie. Oh, my God. There's a documentary, too. Is uh... I saw that. Oh, it's my more, God. It's more fascinating than the movie, actually. Yeah, the, it is. The documentary of it. Yeah. It is. It feels like he... Like, Andy, it was always theater, and it tested your patience and all these things. Jim became... It became a psychology of something, you know? It, was, it became almost a character study of a nervous breakdown or something <laughs> where Andy was, it was like wrestling. And that's why he liked wrestling. Right. I, I put it in that category where, you know, it was a tightrope walk of something <laughs> chicken. It was a game of, of theatrical chicken. But Andy had, Andy was in control all the time. Yeah. Totally in control. How did the rest of the cast react to Andy by and large? Were they confused by him? Were they, 
mad at him a lot? I mean, you talk about Jeff Conaway, who, by the way, didn't he quit? Didn't Jeff Conaway quit the show or was he fired? Uh, I, I, I don't know if he was fired. Or, I'm not sure because I left. He was still in it when I left. I left there. Oh, OK. Three years. Uh, everybody was fine with Andy. I mean, wow. uh, uh, you know, you he was so funny. That character yeah. was so funny. He didn't need a lot of rehearsal. Yeah. And when it was important for him to be there, he was there and he delivered. Yeah. And uh, he didn't socialize with anybody. Mm-hmm. But uh, except me, I spent a few evenings with him. He was at that point, he was waiting tables at Greenblatt's, I think, also. He was a busboy at Greenblatt's. Unbelievable. Yeah, I know. There's nobody like him or I, no I, one. It's it's just all I can do is shake my head. It's just amazing. So during that time, uh, you got closer to the Charles brothers. Yes. Glenn and Les. Uh, tell me about that relationship and how did Cheers come out of that in your partnership with them? We both had the same agents and uh, Bob Roder was our agent. Mm-hmm. And he said after year one of Taxi, you guys should do a show together. And because we, wow. had, we had originally met on the Phyllis show, they were story editors. Mm-hmm. So I kind of knew them, but then we reunited on on Taxi and he said, you guys should do a show. So we thought about it and we uh, we thought and he made a deal with NBC. Uh, we were we were to make two pilots and to do to they had to put one of them on the air. And the mm-hmm. Charles brothers were under the same uh, pressure I was because they were mm-hmm. they had to on taxi. They had to interpret the different kind of rewrites and get get a show there. So they right. worked, they worked really hard. So we became really good friends and. After year three, I think, of Taxi, we started to sit down and talk about a show. And who came up with the the bar idea? Well, it ran the gamut of, we were all fans of Faulty Towers. Oh. Oh, my God. We love that show. And we talked about doing a show in a hotel. Then we talked about it would take place in the bar. Then the bar Mm. kind of sparked us. And we were all sports fans, so we talked about a sports bar in a rabbit city, rabbit sports city, mm-hmm. Joe's Boston. And then we talked about a salmon. We talked literally about a Tracy Hepburn relationship. Interesting. That's what we wanted to do, combined with the bar. So that's what we set out to do. So it was that relationship that was one of the first thinkings about it, because it's funny. That's what Cheers is. It's kind of a romantic comedy in many ways, or a screwball comedy in some ways as well. You know, it kind of borrows from both of those forms. And and at the same time, it's, you know, it's, it's a drawing room comedy. You know, people are sitting around talking, <laughs> that kind of stuff. You know, it's like a lot of things there. But at the heart of it is that is that will they, won't they type of thing. Uh, when did you guys first think, ooh, this is special? It's more, it more than felt like this works, where you felt like this is actually special. When we were done pitching, the original concept was Sam working for a woman. He was going to work for a woman. And I went away for a couple of weeks while the boys wrote the script. Mm-hmm. And when I came back, the script was on my, uh, outside my door. And I opened it, I read it. And I called him and they said, you have brought radio back to television because <laughs> so literate yeah, and so smart. And the two of them had created this character of Diane Chambers. Mm. He had never seen before on television. Mm-hmm. And so I had, I had a spark then and I said, wow, wow, this is something special. Mm-hmm. And then we started to audition and, you know, we had three finalists for, for Sam and Diane. 
we chose Ted and Shelley, the right choice because they had the major chemistry mm-hmm. and they had a coach in high school named Ernie Pantuso. So we, we had talked about this character coach. We always wanted Rhea to play the waitress because we knew her from taxi. Mm-hmm. Every bar has a norm. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. we knew that uh, Cliff Clavin was John Ratzenberger's idea because he read for norm and on the way out the door, he knew he didn't do that well. He said, do you have a blowhard in the bar? And we said, no. So that's how that, that's how. Wow. That, yeah. That's how that create that character. Look at that actors. Yeah. You never know. <laughs> I know. <laughs> I know. And we rehearsed and uh, on all pilots I do, I have an audience run through about three days before we finally shoot the show. Mm-hmm. So I had this audience run through of, there were about three quarters filled with CBs, which are the construction, Navy construction people that mm-hmm. are at Camp, Bendel, Camp Pendleton. And mm-hmm. I looked up in the audience, I saw there were CBs up there and we had a somewhat intellectual show. Mm-hmm. And I said, oh, oh my God, uh, I don't know. So, you know, the show was got medium laughs coming in. Then all of a sudden Norm entered. And what do you know? Uh, you know, they say, Norm, every afternoon, everybody, Norm. And Teddy said, what do you know? And, and George said, not enough. And it got this huge laugh. Mm-hmm. And it was never written as a joke. That's kind right. of, you know, that's not you. You're not going to go. You're not going to find that in a, in a joke book. You know, that's. Mm-hmm. And I looked at Glenn Charles. I'll never forget this. And I and we both said in our heads. They're laughing at not only that silly line, but the character delivering it. Mm-hmm. And I thought to myself, wow, already first time they saw this person, they're laughing at that character. Wow. And so we knew we had something really, really good. And yeah. they laughed at Rhea. They laughed at, uh, they hated Shelly because Shelly was the alien. That's amazing. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, she wow. was, oh my God, how dare she? She was the fly in the ointment in, yeah, that, but in that episode. Yeah. As a good writer, you know, in the first episode, it helps to have an alien because right. you can explain everybody to that person. Yes. Right. Mm-hmm. You get away with laying pipe that way. Right. And so we knew we got big laughs. And we knew, we knew we had something. And then we premiered with uh, a terrible number for the first year we were just in the shithole. I wanted to ask you about that because I've always found that fascinating about Cheers. And I think a lot of people don't know that about Cheers. If you look at that first season of Cheers right now, you go, this is fantastic from episode one. (laughs) You know, like, like there's no doubt that it's fantastic from pilot on. But at the time, audience was like, "Mm," like, it, it was pretty far down in the ratings. I mean, it did horrible that first season, right? Yeah, Thanksgiving, we had a show on that week. Uh, out of the 77 shows on network television, we were 77th. Yeah, I, I, I remember that. It was like the last show. I, I, I remember Johnny Carson doing jokes about shows, and <laughs> I don't know if he mentioned Cheers, but you know, you guys might have been the butt of those jokes too. So here's the thing. Today, you wouldn't have made it past 13 episodes. No. You know? probably six episodes today with those ratings, you know, what kept you on the air? I mean, also, I, let me point this out to the audience. This was a downtime for comedies on television. I mean, there were very few comedies that were working. It, it, ironically, 
reality shows were kind of doing well. Pe- things like Real People and, you know, <laughs> things like that uh, was on, and dramas and... Simon you know, and Simon, just, Magnum yeah, P.I., those kinds of... Those type of shows, yeah. yeah. Uh, P.I. shows, that type of thing. But comedies were kind of at their nadir at that point, it seemed like. Television comedies, they kind of... The heyday was kind of over for sitcoms. Yeah, the Happy Days days were over, Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, in many ways, ironically, yeah. So who was it that said this show deserves to stay on? Well, number one, the press loved them. Yeah. We got rave reviews. Uh, Secondly, the man in charge of programming at NBC was someone named Brandon Tartikoff, who was my dear friend and a wonderful executive who knew if you hire the right creative people, you can leave them alone. Where are they now? Where are those people now? And yeah. the head of the network was Grant Tinker, who had hired myself and yeah. Les. Plus, and I think the ace in the hole was, they had nothing else. There was nothing to really replace it. There was nothing, nothing waiting. Yeah. And because of the press and because of our champions, we made it through the first year. And wow, we were renewed. Did you guys get Emmy nominations that first year? Yeah. <laughs> we won... Yeah. Six Emmys or something like that. So you won six Emmys the first year. Yeah, I won for uh, the last show, shoot, uh, shut down, shootout, whatever it was called. Uh-huh. And Shelley won, and the boy, the boys won, and Cheers won. It beat the final mash. Wow! Yes, that's crazy. Yes, Cheers beat the. F- which was there a particular episode? Was it pilot or the last one? Uh, the, uh, the 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 pilot, I think. Pilot. So pilot of cheers, which is a classic. Oh, I'm not sure because you, guys... you. I think because you had to pick an episode. Yeah, right? well, I don't. I'm, no, I think we put up the last. I don't remember which one we you put pick up. up. The last one, yeah, maybe. But uh, no, we got Emmys. That's got crazy. Emmy nominations. Yeah, but we didn't get the Emmys until the second year began because you got the nominations in July. Right. And the Emmys were in the fall. And then what happened was in when the show started to rerun, people started, well, they had seen Simon Simon. They'd seen Magnum P.I. They had seen We've Got It Made, which was a sitcom on, on ABC. I remember that. They started to watch Cheers. And we got all the way up to ninth one week. And so the groundswell was beginning. And the beginning of the second year, we did much better. You know, we were in the 30s, maybe. Mm-hmm. And then... The following year, the Cosby show came on the air. Right. And we went, everybody went through the roof. That just changed television. That changed. Yeah. That Thursday night must-see TV was crazy. Crazy. And what a block it was, too. I mean, think about that. It starts with the Cosby show and ends with cheers. (laughs) (laughs) No, it ends with... It ends with whatever was after us. Uh, Night Court was after us for a while. Oh, right. But Cheers was 10 o'clock, right? No, Cheers was 9. 9 o'clock, okay. Yeah. Right. It was Cosby fa- uh, Family Ties, Cheers, and then I don't remember. Yeah, it might have been Night Court. There's something else. Yeah, but Family Ties was sandwiched in between there. Yeah. Oh, my God, it was crazy. Still one of the best nights of television ever. Oh. Um, that and Saturday Night in the early 70s on CBS. Oh, yeah. You know. It's just it's just hard to beat those nights. Here's what I like to do. I appreciate you taking this time. You know, I don't want to. I know you're busy, man. No, I'm not. I can not talk to you, honey. 
I could talk to you forever. You know that, Jimmy. There's a lot of people that are interested in the business and that type of stuff. Whenever I talk to someone like you, I like to have a couple of things about some technical things. Can you just tell us what is the difference from your point of view between making a pilot and just directing an episode of television? Like, what are the big major differences? Because you've done so many uh, of pilots as well as episodes, you know. Well, in a pilot, you're introducing people to the audience for the first time. So... You have to be careful that you form characters in a mm-hmm. pilot and not worry so much about uh, how, uh, you know, how big the jokes are. Because mm-hmm. They're not going to be big until the audience knows who these characters are. Mm-hmm. So they, you know, you have to do character study in the beginning. It's mm-hmm. important. You know, you don't want to start out with bang like that. You want to start out kind of slow to engage the audience and stuff like mm-hmm. that. And I have uh, two more days. I have seven full days to do a pilot so I can work. So there's more. more time to kind of smooth that over. Yeah. There. And the writers and working mm-hmm. with the actors and trying to, you know, create magic between them. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, so it does need to be funny, but you don't mm-hmm. have to be big funny right away. You got to you got to lay the groundwork for the jokes that are coming up in the second act. Mm-hmm. So that's that's the really hard thing about a pilot, you know, and it does yeah. help to have an alien. I mean, in Friends, you know, Rachel Green shows up and mm-hmm. they have to tell Rachel who everybody is, you know, so that's, you know, those those are some of the tricks of the writer's trade. In in mm-hmm. Taxi, Judd has, it starts in the taxi with Judd and uh, Randall Carver, who was a cast member mm-hmm. of the first year. He's yeah. out of town, and when he's brought into the garage, Judd introduces everybody. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you have to story, be a good storyteller. In Will and Grace, uh, which, <laughs> Jesus Christ, another classic show. But Will and Grace, it's not just introducing character. You're, you're introducing homosexuality as a thing to be on television. Even though I know that sounds like a big statement, that's what your show Ellen show did it too, but you're also telling the audience, here's something, this is part of the show audience. And in this first episode, this is how we want you to deal with this. This is, these are my words that I'm putting in it. Is there any thought of that as the issue in the show and how you're going to handle that in that pilot episode? The boy, they sent me that script. NBC sent me that script and I read it and I said, Oh my God, they have done a wonderful job of introducing these characters in a way that's not offensive at all. Mm -hmm. Uh, You have a a kind of a straight gay man and you have a gay gay man. A straight gay man and a gay gay man. And you have one. It's like Frazier and uh, and Niles. They they were a gay couple. So so you have the straight gay man can kind of defend off and put a screen up for saying, the gay gay man is stereotypical, mm-hmm. but so the, we never thought we never started to proselytize. That was in, not in our in our wheelhouse. We just wanted to make a show that was really funny, right? Had these characters, and we knew that twenty five percent of the country wouldn't watch it because mm. there were gay people in it. So mm. you know, we 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 had a they, uh, Deb and Eric kissing the pilot at the end of the show. Mm-hmm. And, he, he, you know, just to the audience think, eh, maybe Will can take the magic pills and become straight. And they can- <laughs> 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 
Well, that's well, yeah, yeah. Maybe there's hope for homosexual homosexuality <laughs> after all. Okay, Knowing that well, would never have happen. My and, attention. They, yeah. and they kiss at the end of the first episode just so we can maybe trick a few people. Yeah. Because once they tuned in, they're not going to go away from this show. It yeah. was that funny. Yeah. It was the funniest show I ever did. Out, wow. Out, oh. That is a high compliment. No, it's, I mean, Cheers was my baby, but yeah. it wasn't, you know, uh, it, it, we spent two, three pages in Cheers without a laugh. In Will and Grace, <laughs> that never happened. Right. It was bang, bang, and jokes you couldn't do on any other show. It was an amazing joke machine show. And to have, like, Sean Hayes and Megan Mullally, I mean, I'm, I'm thinking of, I think you have to go back to Taxi to find people with that type of comic energy on shows, you know. Oh, my God. They were, yeah. uh, you know, they're, they're our version of Lenny and Squiggy. Absolutely. But they're complimented by a real relationship at the top, at yeah. the, you know. Yeah, and yeah. all four equally as talented and all four remunerated that way, as they should have been. Yeah, and it is interesting that you couldn't have the show just about those two characters, but those two characters get to be as alive and big and funny as they want to because you have the other characters. Who accept them. Right. And love them. Mm -hmm. And, you know, Megan, a pill-popping, boozing woman, yeah, obviously is unhappy in her life. Right. Well, you know, but the fact that Eric and, and Deb spend time and listen to her validates her to an audience. I got to do a pilot with you. It was called Beverly Hills SUV Sport Utility Vehicle. Was right. the name. <laughs> it's very funny. And uh, it was so much fun seeing you work up close. One of the things that I loved and I wish more people would do is you rewrite in real time during rehearsals, you know, often where you'll stop and let's rewrite this scene right now and run it right now, you know, which I thought that's fantastic. Like during a run through, you know, most people, they do the run through, nothing is said. You go back in hush circles, you talk about the notes, <laughs> and you go off and write it. But why do you like to... I think that is a great process. I loved it when we did that. You and I are standing there together. Well, what do you think? What do you think? Why don't we do this? Like, okay, guys, try it like this. I'm like, yes! It, it, I mean, to me, it felt like theater, like the way things are kind of done. Yeah, well, the, you know, the writer and the director are part of the rehearsal process. Right. You know, and... Uh, uh, it's better, again, it's better to fix it around the actors because they may have some great things. Yes. And, uh, you know, that sh show turned out, I thought that show was going to get picked up. It was really funny, by the it way. It was so yeah. funny. People talked about it for years. and People would come up to me and say, man, what happened to that show that you did, that car <laughs> show? It was hilarious, you know. It was I always lamented it not going. I know. Way. Well, your life would have been miserable, but you know. it would have been horrible. Yeah, I know. Before we go, uh, what's your best advice to somebody who wants to be you? Uh, I have two pieces of advice. Great. Well, they kind of blend into one another. Uh, you're going to get rejected in the business. And that's mm -hmm. that's a given. So when you get your foot in the door, make sure you're ready to act upon that. Because it's tough to get your foot in the door a second time. So when you want to do something, be prepared to do that thing. Don't just blindly try to get your foot in the door to you think you can do it. That's no good. You got to be able to do it. I got my foot in the door, you know, courtesy of knowing Mary and everything like that. But when that door opened for me, I, 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 I ran through it. Yeah, I was the same way. 
I could write jokes all day long by the time I got a job on TV writing jokes. You know, it was something I could do. Yeah, you know? it's a gift. And the other thing is, when you get that opportunity, die with your boots on. Mm. Don't worry about getting your next job. Mm. Try to put your stink on a show any mm. way you can. So that means you got to be prepared for the opportunity and then not be wish you. Don't be that word. That, that phrase that I hate for sitcom directors, they're called traffic cops. Mm. It's a bad, bad, that's a bad, bad for all of us. Mm -hmm. I, and talking to, to young directors all the time, I tell them, please do something, create something, something, mm -hmm. make the show better. So those are the two things I say. If you want to be in my world of sitcom, learn how to talk to actors before you put your foot in the door. Thousand percent. Yeah. Um, take acting classes too. I think yes. that's good for would be directors. Learn yeah. that language or improv classes too. You know, it's good to know that language and have that skill set. Jim Burroughs, thanks so much. It's been such a pleasure talking. Like I said, I could just do this for hours. You're just you're a treasure, my friend. Oh, you're so sweet. You're you're a sweetheart, and uh, I hope I hope we work together again soon. I don't know what you're doing. I. You got I got a few things of possibilities here. I'm always throwing something at the wall. Always throwing something at the wall. <laughs> <laughs> it's just a matter of if it's going to stick or fall down or whatever. But I'm I'm always throwing things at the wall. But yeah, it would be, believe me, the pleasure would be all mine. That'd be great. Watch me anytime, honey. Really. That would be great. Jim Burroughs, you guys. And the book, directed by James Burroughs. It's so good. There's so much in here. Uh we need another book, actually, because there's so well, much. Well, hire me so I can get some stories. <laughs> yeah, we need more stories is yeah. what we need. Uh, Black and Thanks again, James. Thank you. Thank you.